Hemming tours in Afghanistan, obviously, I want um, my friends who are still over there and those who I haven't met to have the best tools with the, you know, the easiest tools to, to do their jobs. And military personnel have a lot of um, glass balls that they juggle. And so if we can really make the tools that they have less complex to use, then that's gonna be really helpful. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Well, welcome to Tough Tech Today. Uh, today, we have the honor of, of speaking with Katie Person. Um, now, I want to say on a, on a sort of personal, professional level, Katie and I have been working together uh, for a couple of years through the MIT Innovation Initiative, where we've uh, co-authored uh, studies on innovate, innovation ecosystems associated with uh, like the Department of Defense and the, the, the ways that it can uh, improve the way that it's working with uh, young companies, venture capital, et cetera. And more recently, we've been uh, working together on um, articles that help speak to entrepreneurs who are building these technologies um, so that they can get the help they need to be able to steward them uh, toward both the private sector and in some cases to toward government as a client. So uh, with with that introduction, um, Katie, could you tell us uh, what your, your role is at MIT currently? Yeah, so I'm the program manager for Mission Innovation Programs. Uh, it's evolved quite a bit since it was stood up two years ago uh, from the research that you talked about to right now really the focus is dual use um, ventures and incubator structure around that to help them find federal opportunities as well as commercial marketplace. So then you must have, uh, I mean, you're, you're seeing, must be seeing startups uh, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and and I, I think it'd be great for us to dig into that. Um, but first, I want to clarify the term uh, dual use. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, in some sectors, it's kind of a dirty word because we associate with, with misapplication or misuse. But like just dictionary wise, it's a technology or a venture that has a military application, but also a commercial enterprise or consumer application. Now, when you say military, do you mean that, that the application is only the military or could be a government application uh, in addition to the military? I'm just coming from this from like the space perspective of sometimes we have stuff that's dual use for space, but not quite the military. Yeah, so I, I've thought a lot about this and kind of wrestled with it. And uh, dictionary wise, just literal, it is military. Um, if there is a space application that can also be, you know, maybe the core technology can also be shared in a military application, then that would be a dual use technology. What would be uh, maybe an example of, of a company or technology that historically has gone sort of down that pathway of serving uh, two somewhat, you know, different kind of client or customer bases that we would retroactively apply the term uh, dual use to? There's one that I work with that's a smart engagement platform. It's something that they started with commercial application. It's, um, it, 
probably traditionally isn't thought of as a military application, but since the Department of Defense is so large and probably the largest single entity that buys things, uh, it buys all business enterprise solutions, it, it buys all medical kinds of devices, and so it also purchased this uh, smart engagement platform. How much would be then um, like the, the enterprise, like traditional kind of corporate enterprise products and services. Um, is that fairly like a one-to-one -one mapping onto that, that the government broadly, like the U.S. government, let's say, would be potentially a customer of, of these projects and services? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think the nuance is that the Department of Defense has, um, is a long time, it's a legacy organization, and it's very slow moving with a lot of bureaucracy. So to actually replace a current system is either very challenging or just not going to happen. And so when they, when the government, when the Department of Defense procures something, it really has to look at what it already has and see first if it can be improved because it's just so expensive to, to replace these kinds of legacy systems. The companies that you're working with, the startups, are these all MIT, um, affiliated companies? Are they current students? Are they people who have been graduated a while? What's, what's sort of the makeup of the types of companies that you help? It's really a mix. Most of them are um, alumni. Some are postdocs. Some are uh, recently departed postdocs. Uh, many of them have PhDs from MIT. And so they have this long um, history with MIT and have been in this ecosystem for a while. And is it is it always MIT technology that like is licensed from MIT, or what's the basis of the technology? Not necessarily. There are some companies that um, license out lab-based technology, and maybe they're a postdoc who was in that lab, and that was something they saw a commercial application for, or government application they wanted to spin out. Uh, but a lot of times, it's um, something somebody worked on maybe what we we consider dorm based but maybe the other organizations consider it garage based that kinds of technology definitely companies formed around that uh, since this is a tough tech podcast we do uh, we also emphasize tough tech so we do prefer working with lab based or at least where the core of their technology was from a lab and maybe it's mm -hmm. evolved since there or maybe part of it still is in the lab with your role and 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 sort of our, our uh, pre-existing associations with with MIT as as a preeminent research institution, it's it's phenomenal on on many levels in that respect. However, with uh, with the dual use ventures and the kinds of companies and technologies that we've all seen over the you know past decades that have evolved, um, would you say that what would you say in terms of the the non MIT folks because that's the majority of folks, and there's no um, reason that the good ideas would only come from like one particular group that's in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, is are you seeing some kind of trends, or in terms of the the ecosystems that are um, outside of of say Cambridge, Massachusetts, that are producing some of these cool technologies and great teams? Yeah, so the, so the only ones I really work with are MIT, but I am on a lot of calls with the Department of Defense and startups, tech startups that are trying to also apply for a certain solicitation that's uh, hosted by the Department of Defense, usually the Air Force. Uh, 
So it seems like a lot of the startups, the tech startups are coming from Texas, from Austin and other various, usually, usually Austin. Uh, I don't hear a lot of people from California, uh, not as many from Silicon Valley as I would think. Um, definitely from the DC area, um, maybe just because they're more familiar with federal government and opportunities. Um, I just attended one that was hosted uh, also by the Ohio, I don't know if it was um, the state of Ohio, one of their agencies, and that's because of the link with the Air Force Research Lab being located in Dayton. So that's a hot, mm -hmm. hot location as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of everywhere and it's not, it's being based in Cambridge. I would always think, oh, it should be completely Cambridge, but it's really such a small portion when I attend on these calls that are actually from Cambridge or even greater Boston. What types of things is the Department of Defense doing to, to partner with these small companies? Like, is there any, it's a slow moving organization, but what sort of innovation are they trying to do um, to speed up, you know, the cycle of funding so these companies don't starve before they can get a contract? Yeah, so in the last maybe eight to 10 years, there's been this huge ramp up. And really in the last couple of years, uh, with the creation of AFWorks, AFWorks has really led the way in their contract cycles, how fast they'll award money from the submission of the um, proposals, um, the who they're reaching out to, because a lot of those solicitations are very precise with what the DOD is seeking. So AFWERCs created an open topic solicitation, and there has been at least one joint solicitation in February, where if you're in a, a general you know, if your technology or company meets a general theme, such as flying orbs, which is the flavor of today, uh, then you can propose uh, for, for some funding and for a contract. So that, that really like opens up uh, the reach of who can apply and who should be applying to these solicitations. And um, each of the services has their own way of thinking about innovation and how to reach more people. The Army has the Army Applications Lab, which is really focused on connecting with VCs. And that's really been their target way to meet new people, meet new startups and see what's in the market. The Navy has Naval X, Naval Agility Cell, and they have these tech bridges where they're located on uh, Naval bases but they're really for startups to reach out to and say, you know, I have this great technology. Uh, where in the world do I, how do I interact with the Navy? And that person plays the role of matchmaker to the program mm -hmm. executive office uh, within the Navy that's working on that kind of work. There's a lot to unpack there with, with what you said. <laughs> that's a lot. So um, I think maybe a contextual question uh, could be helpful in terms of, um, okay, I've, I've heard what you said in terms of like there's the, the different branches of the military um, have their own ways of doing things. Um, if I'm an entrepreneur or maybe a family member or a friend is working, I'm hoping to get into this space. Um, could you help me understand the overall process by which the Department of Defense thinks about some of the like new technologies and how it goes about um, the acquisition process of that, which I understand is a little different than on um, typical startup land where we're like, 
yeah, I got acquired for like, you know, hopefully millions of dollars. Um, it's a little bit different meaning of the word in, in the military. Yeah. So I, I, I understand your question in kind of two different ways. So if I'm a startup, uh, it kind of starts with what kind of startup are you? Do you have some kind of scientific discovery or technology mechanism that you've engineered that you think you can place into some that will solve some kinds of different problems? And in that case, you have to figure out what your use cases are for that and how you can really scale that innovation, whether it's building out a system, whether it's uh, you know retrofitting it for different use cases. And that's in that's different than Maybe if you're a team of engineers and you want to solve interesting problems and you have an area of expertise in, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so the latter is more, it's a classic DOD entry point. You, you have this area of expertise. You go through DOD sibersitter.mil or .gov. I think it's .mil. You look through all of the solicitations. You see which one fits. You apply to it and hopefully you get awarded your contract. But if you have this, this technology, the scientific discovery that you want to get into the DOD process, that's really, uh, it's only been until recently that you can easily. Mm. Uh, so that would be an open topic that the Air Force uh, regularly hosts and sometimes the other services add on to their joint topics. Um, that would be maybe these different challenges like AFWERKS Challenge, uh, Softworks has different challenges. They're, they're saying, you know, we have this problem, solve it in any way you can. So you could bring a biotech solution or you could bring a human, you know, a, a robotic solution or whatever your area of expertise. If you think it fits, then you can propose a solution. Um, the other way you talked about your question is from the DOD's perspective of how they want to integrate startups. And it really kind of feels, and I, I don't like saying this because I do originate my early career was in the military and in government, but it does feel like sometimes the small business set aside is an afterthought. <laughs> and so what, it's what's the small business set aside? What, what yeah, is that? So, in, um, so the small business set aside is specifically for those businesses that have fewer than 500 people or depending on your NAICS code, when you, you know, when you're trying to figure out where you fit in the government and what you're offering, there's a specific definition, maybe if you're, you know, if you're nanotechnology, it might be a certain dollar volume that, that identifies you as a small business. But then you go and register as a small business with the federal government, and then you're able to apply for small business set-asides, which are specific solicitations uh, that only small businesses can compete for. And these, I see these as kind of um, in two buckets. Uh, the DOD has the regular BAAs that are not tech-based. These are a lot of service-based. Maybe you're a landscaping company and you need to mow the lawns, at, do all the landscaping for Hanscom Airbase. And that's maybe a, a small business set aside. But then the tech, in 1982, there was a federal directive that uh, came down and was initiated and that established the CIBR program, the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation Research. And so that's where engineers and scientists if, if you want to work in that field, that's where you go to um, either cyber.gov, National Science Foundation has these, NIH has these, and then DOD, cyber.gov has these, even the USDA has these. These are 
there's a, a tremendous number of agencies that are required based on their budgets that they a certain percentage is mandated that it has to go to small businesses. Now, when you have a a startup that is thinking about pursuing uh, dual use ventures and what, and maybe they have some VCs or people funding them, what's kind of the reaction that you see from them? And, and are you able to communicate the value of pursuing a dual use venture or, um, or sometimes it's just not worth it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough. I, I think if a, if a uh, startup, if a tech startup has really a lot of VC interest, then the VCs are going to steer whether they want uh, that startup to pursue DOD contracts or government contracts. May not be in alignment with um, with their their requirements for ROI, which uh, Jonathan laid out nicely in his blog series that's on the innovation.mit.edu website. <laughs> um, Check it out. <laughs> But it is, it's tricky, right? Because VCs, you know, depending on the VC and what they want, if they're comfortable with DOD contracts, it's really going to depend on on whether that fits into the startup's business strategy. So it's all, I mean, DOD is not for everyone and it's not for every business. Um, It really, it, it just kind of depends on whether you're, you come in really mission focused and you say, you know what, I do, I have this aerial navigation system or, you know, whatever it is. And it, and I really see it on Navy ships. Like if that's how you come in at it, then that's where you start. And then you Mm -hmm. see, you know, whether there's some commercial applications for, you know, for Maersk or for some other major ship companies. Um, But it, it just really depends on your business strategy. That's really interesting. Are, are you seeing um, what kinds of, of, Technological trends um, are are you seeing, and, and how has that changed over the past couple of years? For what the DoD is seeking, well, I, I'd say it's on on the DoD side. That's that's only part of it, though. Also, because of your role working within within uh, the startup ecosystem, where um, it's not just sort of a you know a, a, what is it the, the market pool or tech push. There's a little bit of both sides of that market, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, with the startups that I talked to, there's, there's quite a few that are in robotics, uh, some are in hypersonics, mm. uh, although that's hard. Um, some, a lot are in coming out of, uh, labs with cancer research and saying, you know what, I, I know DOD pays money for good research. Is this possible? I think kind of a lot of those, there's a little bit on sustainability, but it is mostly very classic defense kind of things or very classic healthcare kind of things coming out of MIT from what, who I get to see at mm-hmm. least. Well, that's interesting that on, on, on the healthcare and sort of medical side of things, um, are you seeing a uh, more, what kind of influences are you seeing from say uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and and uh, BARPA, the Biological Advanced Research Projects Agency. I don't see either one of those. I understand that they're, um, it, you know, they they do a lot of um, funding. They do a lot of cyber cycles. They're rolling cyber cycles. At least DARPA is. I actually don't have BARPA on my, um, you know, under my. I'm not watching it as much as I am the other ones. 
Uh, a lot of times we don't necessarily recommend DARPA because it is so either early or um, specific or uh, oversubscribed with applications. But it doesn't mean that it's not, I mean, if, if that's what your lab research deals with and that solicitation matches, that's definitely a worthy opportunity for, for funding your research. So where's the most undersubscribed area? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of... I guess it won't be undersubscribed once everyone listens to this and <laughs> yeah. finds well, out the secret. So, yeah, I think if we held that... I mean, I've heard, I've heard rumors that I, you know, sometimes they just pan out. Like, I just go with the rumor and I tell a startup, you know, I heard this rumor that nobody's applying for this STTR. So I do hear that STTRs are generally less applied for than SBIRs, particularly in DOD, because nobody knows what an STTR is. And that's different than NSF. NSF is widely subscribed. Everybody in universities have heard, maybe have heard of National Science Foundation, and there's wonderful commercialization programs like ICOR to help uh, gain some traction with NSF. I think as far as volumes of dollars, when we look at, um, it's like almost $2 billion from the last data batch, which was, I think, 2018 for the volume of SIBR and SITR dollars that strictly DOD issued, as opposed to the second largest was NIH, and then the third largest was the National Science Foundation. And that went all the way down to um, Department of Education has a program. And um, USDA, Department of Energy is pretty high up there. I think that's fourth, I want to say. I'm not certain. But, uh, so there's probably eight or nine agencies in there. You mentioned that you have uh, some background through like, like army acquisitions. Um, and I know that's not the, the only part of your background that I have and that is relevant to this. What keeps you engaged and really working to, to help continue sort of developing this, this part, this really important part of both startups and the way that the government is able to benefit sort of, you know, collectively? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I think um, having tours in Afghanistan, obviously I want um, my friends who are still over there and those who I haven't met to have the best tools with the, you know, the easiest tools to, to do their jobs. And um, military personnel have a lot of um, glass balls that they juggle. And so if we can really make the tools that they have less complex, to use, then that's going to be really helpful and more effective. Uh, I think my other, the other side to that is that the DOD needs to access the largest amount of human capital that it can so that it brings in the best minds to solve these tough problems. And the SIPR and SITR programs are, are probably the largest mechanism to do that. And so this is a great opportunity for people who are interested in helping uh, be part of the solution with these tough problems to come in and to contribute. And then um, the tough part is really getting it through the acquisition system into a phase three, into that like integrated into a major defense acquisition program where maybe a tech startups algorithm is then um, part of, you know, whatever it is, aerial delivery system or a Space what program. what percentage do you think makes it to that part? I think it's extremely low. I the so Jonathan and I have talked about the how the trough of disillusionment is between phase two and phase three. 
And so it's for your audience, Sibber and Sitter has a phase one and phase two, but then phase three is not under small business dollars. You're just, you're either lucky enough to get a sole source and you've really made a compelling case, which I think is rare, or you compete against uh, large major defense primes. Uh, so probably the best way to make that get across that trough of disillusionment is to uh, potentially partner with one of those defense primes to get your your piece of the puzzle into a larger contract. So then it, for the listeners, then that means that if, if we're, we're, we're okay on phase one, congratulations. Phase two, um, we're maybe we're getting a, a, we're going beyond like a prototype stage, maybe some semblance of what we might call like a product market fit. Um, but then phase three is now, it's kind of like the gloves are off and we are, as a little company, up against Boeing, Lockheed, and all the rest. Is that, is that a correct uh, yeah, assessment? Yeah, I would, I would kind of fine tune it a little bit where uh, depending on the solicitation, a phase one can sometimes, it's, it's technically by um, definition a feasibility study. And that can be both in the technical sense or some of them are simply uh, making sure that you're finding the right customer. Like for the, some of the open topics, they give you that three month contract to identify whether there is somebody in the Air Force who says, yes, I absolutely need this. I will run a pilot with it. Phase two is where you're uh, completing your prototype and actually putting it into a pilot program, running it, uh, testing it, uh, maybe not a formal test like you might think of uh, ATAC or uh, the government has very formal testing procedure, but this is kind of just a pilot program to see how it goes. And then uh, phase three is, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like your equivalent of production. If you're a tech company and you're not going into production, it might be maintaining an algorithm or a piece of software or a, you know, whatever that is that, you're, um, that you've developed, maintaining it, polishing it, making it better, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely for that next phase and going on, that it really helps to have partners. Um, just a plug, Draper is a, a place that you can come to, you know, help find some people that can help partner your partner with you. We work with a lot of um, of the DoD customers and love having companies to help integrate uh, into some of the systems that our customers want. Yeah, and Primes have figured out ways to work with startups because they recognize the um, maybe that they're attractive to have some new kinds of innovation happening that they're a part of, or if it's um, maybe it, it makes their uh, proposal to a major contract more attractive. You know, they need maybe small businesses to be a part of it or a company from North Dakota, you know, like whatever it is. Um, and so all of those defense primes have some way of interacting with startups. Some are through investment, some, are strictly through vendor services. Uh, BAE Fast Labs claims to be through strictly vendor services. Whereas, um, Jonathan, what was the company that, maybe it was Lockheed Ventures, what was it? That is, uh, it's actually a VC, right? Yeah, Lockheed Ventures um, and Boeing Horizon X, which has some sort of like an accelerator component to it for sort of quasi venture capital and dual use and build a, help build the startup all at the same time. The United States Department of Defense is 
of course, a major influencer in sort of the global military industrial uh, system, but it's not the only one in town, certainly. Could, could you help us and, and our, our listeners or viewers sort of paint a little bit of a contrast between maybe like the DOD and NATO um, or some of the other uh, major influencers globally? NATO, what I've heard from talking with startup founders and also with members of NATO who run these kinds of organizations is it can be um, help. You can both apply to the formal solicitations, but then you can also kind of run uh, pilot programs uh, where you're kind of there. There may they may not be investing initially, but maybe you need the data or some kind of create an agreement where you're providing them something for free until they buy it. So it's, it is not entirely different from the DOD where they do have the ability to sole source, but it's not widely, widely uh, always accepted. Um, the other, other kinds of organizations, I'm trying to think if there are, you ha- did you mention any, any other ones, Jonathan? Uh, uh, no, NATO though, I, of course, there's some of the, the nas- other national, nationalistic uh, militaries, like whether it's China, Russia, yeah. Israel, et cetera, that would be maybe not NATO, um, but also very, probably di- very different way of going about their, their business. Yeah, how do we measure up with our, you know, our innovation approach? Because this seems like mm-hmm. it's a competitive point for the United States, right? That we need to incentivize, you know, our technology in a better way than, than other countries can. Yeah. So I, I think to address, like, First, I don't, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about ITAR, which, you know, if you sell to the U.S. government, you have to get it approved before you sell it to another government. What's um, that? I'll, I'll put it in the spot. What's that acronym mean? <laughs> International Trade and Regulation. <laughs> ITAR. I, the, <laughs> International Traffic on Arms. Traffic and Arms. <laughs> so, and arms. There, there's so many acronyms in this in this field. Um, I know it's difficult to keep track of. <laughs> International traffic and arms regulation. Is that right? It may not be right. Yeah, there might be some. I, I believe that it is. In space, we deal with it every day. But my hence why we just, call it ITAR. <laughs> if it flies in space, U.S. only, then let other people worry about the rest. <laughs> Yeah, so basically the Department of State has to approve whether you can sell to another nation. And a lot of times you'll be surprised that uh, something is considered uh, under ITAR regulation. I guess that's redundant. Under ITAR, um, if it's a piece of software that, you know, is specifically uh, crafted to go into a U.S. aircraft or like a U.S. Air Force aircraft, then that is under ITAR, even if it has commercial applications. So it's uh it is very pervasive yeah when we talk about competition and whether dod is able to keep up i mean that's like that's like the elephant in the room like i think it's accepted that no the us can't keep up with china china is able to uh fund strategically fund companies in a way that uh we're not able to whether it's because of case law or because of uh the population size, human capital in deep tech areas, uh, all kinds of reasons. And I really, my, I really fear that the U.S. Um, 
we don't have enough students or young people who plan to go into these deep tech areas so that we have this human capital in the future. And so I think this is, this is like the number, I, to me, this is the number one national security issue is this, we need more US citizens, Americans in STEM and going into STEM in the future and mid-careers transitioning into STEM to get this expertise and at least know how to apply it and work it even if they're in, in policy or in some kind of other, uh, just understanding how to work with it. Um, and it's also the basis to the future of our economy. So, it, you know, it's, it's the heart of our future in national security and the economy. So it's a really big deal. And I think uh, Congress has recognized this through their um, proposal, their bill for the National Science Foundation to be, to get even more money and to be called the National Science and Technology Foundation. I can't remember what the bill is called, but this just came out a few weeks ago. And so there's, there's definitely plenty of attention to this, but um, it's, it's really feels very far off to me. Is there a role uh, or, or an opportunity with say the newest branch of the U S military, the U S space force to be able to uh, from the ground up sort of refresh, rethink how acquisitions are done um, and to, to expedite it, perhaps to get a little bit more toe to toe, toe to toe, um, with some of the other military groups uh, globally. So I think some of the infrastructure they won't be able to, like the regulation is there, the federal acquisition regulation. All you know, it's those are solid in there. Uh, they're they're hiring everybody brand new because it's brand new. So there's the potential where they could hire the kinds of people who can think in a little bit different way, uh, whether they're doing that or not, I don't know. Um, and certainly it sounds like their leadership is committed to being more innovative and recognizing and solving, trying to solve as best as they can, these acquisitions uh, challenges. And so I think that that's, I mean, that, that in and of itself is the first step. Um, but it is not going to be without its own challenge with already built infrastructure, with the regulation, the case law, all of that, those kinds of things that they're founded in. So not, not quite starting fresh. No. <laughs> What's the, your favorite part about your job? Um, so I get to talk with a mix of DOD people who are trying to buy things or trying to be that matchmaker, or that innovation cell. And then I also get to talk with these startups and every day my day is packed with eight meetings of, you know, maybe it's five of startups and three with DOD and trying to put together the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so as long as I can add value to both systems, both kinds of people, then, um, then I, I get a lot of uh, gratification out of my job. So hopefully I am, if you're listening and you're one of these people, um, please lean on me too. To continue to do this, and, and that's uh, a good lead, good lead into uh, some of your most recent work um, in terms of growing uh, MIT's STTR program. How do you feel that this program, which my understanding is it's currently for like MIT affiliates, it's kind of restricted to that, which is a, a large pool, fortunately. However, um, it's not everybody. So, how do you feel that this could become uh, a model of one way? to help foster that sort of academic linkage and the, the deep or tough tech uh, research that's going on to make it so that it supports not just the private sector, but also the public more broadly. 
So with the STTR, the startups always lead, right? So MITII, MIT is the subcontractor to a startup in each solicitation, which really kind of um, is a bit refreshing, puts a, a lot of onus on the startup and also emphasizes our faculty, Dr. Fiona Murray's model of the uh, five stakeholder model where all of the stakeholders come to your round table. So government isn't calling all the shots or industry isn't calling all the shots, university, VC, startups. So startups get, you know, they are, they are the CEOs, they are coming here and they are the, the primes for these. We are not the first to do this model. I definitely know of at least one other university that's doing this. And I have to credit Louisiana Tech for creating this and doing this. And there's a lot of interesting models out in places we don't suspect and um, leveraging federal opportunities where, um, where they can be leveraged. And so hopefully this model is um, replicated. It can be a little bit of a hard sell when you're talking about a $50,000 contract and MIT is getting 15,000 for three months. You know, we go to central office and they're like, you're not, you're not very high on my priority list. <laughs> Maybe I don't, I don't know if that's what they say, but uh, I, I feel like they could say that because 15,000 and it's the same amount of overhead as maybe a larger contract. So there is that um, negative for universities and nonprofits doing this. But um, I mean, we hope to touch as many great MIT deep tech startups that need this kind of uh, education and programming around this so that they can apply in the future and get their phase threes. The, the work that you spoke on has it's like almost a whole different world in terms of vocabulary, mentality, the philosophy of the, the work itself. Um, how Are there some resources that you have found useful and that you may suggest to our audience that, that they can help get smarter about some of these topics that you've touched on? Because there's a lot there. Yeah, definitely. So, so cyber.gov, for sure, that's the first place anybody should go if they're a thinking about applying to federal opportunity. They have a great eligibility guide on there so you know whether you're eligible. Even if you have VC investment, it will, it will walk you through whether you're eligible for these kinds of uh, opportunities. Um, there's a private, uh, not, it's a nonprofit Eastern Foundry and they have a series of videos to get you kind of through these, um, some of the more bureaucratic, okay, register on this site and then this one and then this one and then this one. And as you go through this, this is really helpful. And so Eastern Foundry has this great, great website, all these tutorials. Um, one of the, the other is uh, the National Science Foundation has their timeline on their website. And it breaks down what the, um, you know, first you apply for, you know, you write your three page pitch. And then if you get accepted, you apply. This kind of timeline is really useful. Um, for any kind of agency. DOD doesn't make you do a three-page pitch first, but NSF has so much, so many um, people who apply, so they need to, to add this step, I suspect. And so it breaks down what this process is and what the times look like, and that it may not be exact for other agencies, but it at least gives you an idea of what you're looking at. Thank you. I'll also put in a plug uh, on your behalf for um, MIT Innovation Initiatives work uh, um, under the usually under the banner of mission innovation, um, the the thought leadership that that you 
um, Dr. Murray and a whole host of other folks um, on the team are continuing to, to build out to help uh, help document and and provide some directionality to the the entrepreneurs, the academic researchers, the government representatives, and everyone else that's within this the stakeholder system to to be able to make make things go smoother and um, and and get built faster and uh, in a more healthy, safe way. Katie, thank you so much for for um, investing your time with us today. It's been uh, a real pleasure to. Um, I mean, we've, we've worked together in the past and, and, and into the future. Um, now to, the, to be able to share your knowledge with, with our audience is uh, it's such an honor for us to have you on the show. That's very kind of you. Um, hopefully I didn't get too much into jargon and uh, can, I'm happy to go, you know, dig into any kind of specifics, you know, in future episodes or questions or whatever that you hear from your audience. I love that. So. Hey, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Tough Tech Today. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on YouTube, subscribe and hit the bell. Or if you're listening as a podcast, please leave a five-star review. In two weeks, we'll be sitting down with Will Dixon and Trinity Torres of FedTech, a startup incubator and accelerator that helps companies commercialize their technologies through the support of the federal government.